0: this is Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific. I'm Susana Suisuiki. Coming up, a survivor says gender-based violence in the Pacific is a pandemic. Also,
1: let me be clear, the United Kingdom is totally committed to the Paris Agreement and
0: to keeping 1.5 alive.
2: As COP28 draws
0: to a close, is it merely a summit of empty promises and pledges? And later,
2: a lot of our people or our women do not use the formal system for various reasons.
0: Gender equality in the Pacific is seen as slow to come. A gender-based violence survivor in Papua New Guinea says Pacific governments have a lot to prove in the fight against violence. The UN's annual international campaign against gender-based violence ended on December 10th on Human Rights Day according to the New Zealand Council for International Development, the Pacific region has one of the highest recorded rates of violence against women and girls globally with two out of three women subjected to physical and or sexual violence in their lifetime. Hena Joku, a freelance journalist and gender-based violence advocate told Lydia Lewis it's an issue that is rampant in PNG. This is an issue that's worldwide but
3: for a lot of us uh, a lot of the conversation is always hidden behind culture. Mm. It is not cultural. And that's why because of that cultural attachment to it, it's a taboo topic. Mm. And so people still look at it as a domestic issue and a marital issue. And so having the conversation openly, it's still not happening enough. So what like, will
1: this changes do?
3: I think it's going to, it, it will force the governments to realise how much of a pandemic it is as much as climate change is and the other issues that we are facing, like for Papua New Guinea specifically, and I think each of our Pacific countries to a degree, if you can just tackle gender-based violence by default, you will automatically be addressing the other issues that come with it. And we need to be celebrating our culture, not attaching it, you know, to GBV. Our ancestors and forefathers didn't live like this. And I think when the incidents used to happen previously, it was something that was addressed by the village or by the community. Whereas now a lot of the focus is, I see, on intimate partner violence. I've been here only seven days and I've had four cases I've had to communicate with back in PNG, people needing help and you know basics what do and it's that access to information again i think that's that's the simplest thing and so if somebody called to say hey how do i go to fsbu and report something um how do i get my niece to help she needs because she's 19 and i've just found this out i live in australia she's in papua new guinea so it is so critical to keep sharing uh, the networks and information that we have because the process is basic in going to the police station with the enforcement bid in how it's going to go into the judiciary space, committal court, going on to national court. And so if we as a region really just <clears throat> face and accept that it is a pandemic and together, okay, what's going to work? And I think this, you know, this revitalization of this <clears throat> declaration is so critical at this time because this this issue and not having the equal representation at forum level as well um, can, can our leaders make sure this issue is something that is prioritised and we're not going to wait another couple of years again and I think by revitalising it we're going to hold each other accountable and then set maybe smaller measures on what have we achieved after a year or what have we achieved after two? Because when you look at things as a whole and we look at the whole 2050 thing, strategy, some of these leaders may not be here. And so it is so important to make sure our young people, our youth space, are understanding what this is all about because they're going to carry on the conversations. Um, it's exciting that, you know, we have these three youth voice is here with us right now for this so while we're all focused with the mainstream media and using our online platforms they're focused on just the youth space and that peer-to-peer conversation is so critical because a lot of youth will not necessarily listen to the elders but they'll listen to each other and influence each other I think at a greater rate and speed of influence than we could in wanting to tell them what to do It's like, hey, these are the issues. And a lot of the issues they're adopting into their generation now. And so we have to be fixing our systems and our laws, changing what needs to be changed at national level, in our own countries that filters down to, you know, local level, community and district level, village level. But it has to happen here. And it it has to happen both ways, you know, bottom up and top down.
1: Why is this so important to you? You don't have to say if you don't want to but I would like to give you the opportunity if you would like to.
3: So speaking out and being a voice um, against violence that's happening to women and girls is because of my own personal journey. That's taken me five years to get a successful conviction. Um, I'm not sure of the stats specifically, but I think it is one of the few cases in Papua New Guinea where we've had a successful rape conviction without any medical evidence. And it was based on my statement alone, which was very detailed. And that's another thing I um, advocate openly on is down to those little basics in writing that statement. That document is what the police will use for an investigation and what a police prosecutor is going to use to represent you at committal court. And if your statement is not strong enough, if it has not captured the gravity of the assault and the situation and what happened to you, then the police cannot apply the appropriate charges. So the language and the details that yes can be traumatic to put down it's so important to capture it so that this person can be held accountable and so I think as a journalist um, and media it was so important for me to use the platform that I have to amplify this issue because I already saw you know, a gap in information getting down to the public and the access that we have to certain people and certain agencies and organisations and individuals that sit in positions of influence you know we can question them we can challenge them and we have a better way of articulating the systems and processes in a more simpler way that the public can understand so in doing that from the police complaint up until the sentencing is what I've documented by social media every step every incident every threat every harassment every time I had to go and update something every time I had to follow up Every door that I've had to knock on within the judiciary or law enforcement space, I documented every step of the process. Um, Because I also want to to give back to the government my case in its entirety and say, these are your gaps, these are the loopholes, fix it. Because it is ridiculous to think that women and girls, you know, even male victims of violence, have to go through a process that takes this long just to get justice.
0: The 2023 United Nations Climate Change Conference is coming to an end in Dubai after two weeks of speeches, discussions and pledges by world leaders to address the climate crisis. The consensus among all delegates was an urgent need to lower fossil fuel emissions. However, this year's conference saw some high-profile delegates criticise the influence of the fossil fuel industry and the reality of reaching fossil fuel emissions reduction targets. Fina Funor has more.
3: It seems to us in the Pacific that we have not done enough. We are sinking. The cyclones are getting
4: more severe. Fiji's Prime Minister Sitiveni Rambuka was among the many small island state leaders who called on developing nations to lower fossil fuel emissions. The last decade has been particularly worrisome for Pacific Island nations who have seen a dramatic increase in the frequency of cyclones. Commonwealth Secretary General Patricia Scotland is among leaders who have backed calls by Pacific Island nations. The Secretary General says the recent spate of cyclones that devastated Vanuatu is a clear sign of a climate crisis. They had two cyclones within the space
0: of 48 hours and now they've been struck by a third cyclone. Many people are saying that the 1.5 degree is now on life support. So there's never been a more important time for us to be here at COP. I need to make sure the world realises that what's happening to our small islands today is what will happen to them tomorrow.
1: Let me be clear. The United Kingdom is totally committed to net zero. The Paris Agreement, and to keeping 1.5 alive. That's why we've decarbonized faster than any other major economy."
4: British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak was among the leaders of various global powers who pledged to increase funding in climate action. It seems like a big step forward, except his pledge is reminiscent of those made by his predecessors. Pledges and pleas on climate action have become repetitious, with critics viewing COP as a grandstanding routine. But some delegates have expressed alternative views. American hedge fund billionaire Ray Dalio surprised many when he conceded corporate interests were a barrier. Dalio said climate change solutions needed to address the economic fallout of regulating the fossil fuel industry.
3: I believe that more we're going to be moving in an economic way Mm -hmm. to adaptation. Mm -hmm. But if you go to, let's say, banks, they say banks have a lot of money, but banks have assets and liabilities. And if they don't receive or give their depositors or those who are putting money with them an adequate amount of return, they won't have any money. So you still have to have the return component of that. What happens is self-interest is a great motivator when you have that.
4: Other industry delegates have been more defensive, such as the United Arab Emirates Special Envoy for Climate Change, Sultan al-Jabba, who just so happens to be the president for this year's COP. He came under fire just days after the conference started when he reportedly told former Irish President Mary Robinson that there was no science to support that phasing out fossil fuels would keep global warming under a critical threshold. Compounding the scrutiny is al Jabba's suitability to oversee the summit given that he also happens to be the head of the UAE's largest oil company, the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company. In an interview with CNN, prominent climate activist and former U.S. Vice President Al Gore ridiculed Al-Jaba's appointment as a conflict of interest. He's charged with the, by the U.N. with the responsibility of guiding the world toward a sharp phase down of these uh, greenhouse gas emissions, which mainly come from burning fossil fuels. But he's charged uh, by his sovereign uh, uh, the, and the company that he heads with a massive expansion of fossil fuels. Sultan al Jaber rebutted the criticisms. In a heated press conference in Dubai, he told media he was being misrepresented. Al-Jabba said he supported a phase out and defended his appointment.
0: I'm an engineer by background. It's the science and my respect to the science and my passion about the science and it's about my conviction to the science that have enabled me to progress in my career. I have said over and over that the phase down And the phase-out of fossil fuel is inevitable. In fact, it is essential. And this transition needs to be orderly, fair, just and responsible. And it needs to be well managed.
4: According to NASA, 2023 is the warmest year since global records began in 1880.
0: The Pacific Islands Forum Secretariat Gender Specialist says real change following the 2012 Pacific Leaders' Gender Equality Declaration has been slow to come. Pacific Leaders endorsed the pledge in 2012, then 10 years later there was a review of the declaration and leaders have only now revitalised it. Dr Fiona Hukula told Lydia Lewis changes were needed after the review, which found people weren't even aware of the leaders' commitments. There was no ownership of the declaration and no oversight.
2: So the key difference between the original pledge of 2012 and the one that's been revitalised now is that we have a more an expanded focus. This revitalised pledge is now also aligned with the 2050 strategy for the for the Blue Pacific Continent. So the thematic, it's it's aligned to the seven thematic areas of the 2050 strategy, and it's also more broader. So what I mean by it's broader, meaning that the first declaration really focused on six areas. This declaration now is broader in the sense that it has it reflects current priorities for our region around climate change it also takes into consideration other pathways to addressing gender equality such as sports there's also been uh, through the consultations um an emphasis on ensuring that we engage with men and boys beyond uh, addressing sort of issues around gender-based violence which is where a lot of the work around engaging men and boys is but right across the gender equality work there's better engagement with men and boys.
1: Was that not included previously?
2: So previously under the um, the, the previous uh, the first iteration of the pledge their focus uh, the focus was on ending violence and so there was programs that addressed ending violence against women and girls that had a focus on engaging men and boys. But the difference with the revitalised pledge is that the engagement of men and boys is seen as key all across different sectors of gender equality.
1: With the pledge that before it was revitalised, how many gains were made
2: Um, In the 10 years, while there is concern, there's definitely concerns that there needed more to be done. We know that um, a lot of work has been done to ensure that there's, for example, in addressing gender-based violence, that most of our member countries have legislation in place. There's programs um, um, around... Um, addressing gender-based violence in terms of prevention and response. Um, So a lot of work has been done um, in that space.
1: Does this call on governments to implement a quota? How would that be addressed in regards to this pledge?
2: Well, in terms of the pledge, it it is calling for stronger commitment at all levels in um, in order to achieve gender equality.
1: But how does that look and like?
2: It, 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 so, so I guess what it looks like is can is also incumbent upon the countries. There's different uh, views around quotas and temporary special measures for women's leadership. One of the things that have, has come out quite clearly with the work we've done to revitalise this pledge is to also ensure that um, there's a recognition of the the role of leadership that women play in the community communities so it's at all levels so um, the leaders through the de- declaration call for accelerated ac- actions and measures to strengthen the participation of all Pacific peoples Pacific uh, particularly women and girls in all their diversity at all levels of leadership and decision making so that that call is is the pledge um call to action for member countries to implement or um, strengthen pathways for women's leadership at all levels.
1: So how could they do that? Could you give me some example of legislative changes?
2: Well, there's already work in various countries around um, uh, thinking about about these issues and how to get more women in political leadership. Um, there's some countries that have uh, subnational level quotas for women. In in Papua New Guinea, the the autonomous region of Bougainville has three seats for women. There's also at the Motu which is the local level government uh, seats for women. So at different levels, there are there's there's different bits of work going on in different countries.
1: Is is that, is, for example, Bougainville with the three seats, Is are they taking the lead here? Do you hope that Papua New Guinea will implement a similar me- measure?
2: Well, there has been discussions in Papua New Guinea around this for, for many years. I think we, we can see that from the Bougainville experience that it has been useful for them in particular. But I think one of the things that we need to also be very mindful of is, of course, uh, all across the region, our countries work in, dif- uh, work in different cultural and social environments um, in the way that... Um, and, and so that in, in itself um, has um, an influence in the way uh, people think about women's leadership Especially at that very high political level.
0: That's Pacific Waves for today. Tell to us listen back, head over to slash programs. We're also on Apple, Spotify, and iHeartRadio podcasts. From myself and the RNZ Pacific team, so far so good.